Welcome to the Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller from WMHT.org. David Allen Miller conducts the Albany Symphony, and he provides commentary on the WMHT Live broadcast. David's commentary is full of fascinating stories about the music, the performances, and more. In order to keep the program mostly music, some of what he provides ends up on the cutting room floor. This podcast contains no music, but it does contain all of David Allen Miller's commentary from the concert broadcast on WMHT Live from WMHT-FM, your classical companion. The Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony concert broadcast is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. The big event of this concert was, of course, the world premiere of Michael Torkey's brand-new, beautiful three-movement piano concerto called Three Manhattan Bridges. So in designing the program for the sumptuous acoustics of the Troy Savings Bank Music Hall, I wanted to surround this new, very, I assumed, New York jazzy concerto with some rather contrasting pieces. And I settled on two pieces, both from the 1820s, interestingly. Joaquino Rossini's very famous William Tell Overture, a work that's often heard in bits or parts. Everybody is familiar with some of it, but not everybody's familiar with all of it. And then decided to end the concert with one of the glorious, the most glorious works of the entire classical period, and arguably the last great symphony of the classical period, Franz Schubert's Symphony Number no. 9, the great C major symphony. Beginning with the William Tell Overture is always such a, an exciting and interesting thing because, uh, as I said, um, everybody sort of knows the most famous part of the overture, the dum the finale of the overture. But most people don't know the rest of the overture, particularly the beautiful opening. Uh, just as a little bit of background, uh, Rossini wrote this opera in 1829. It was, in fact, his last opera. He had such an interesting career. He was a had a meteoric ascent between the ages of about 18 and 29. He composed 29 operas uh, in all kinds of genres, many of them comic operas, opera buffo, but some of them rather serious operas like Tancredi and like this, his very last and most monumental uh, operatic utterance, William Tell based on the the play by Schiller, the great German dramatist, and of course on the legendary story that we all know of the, the great Swiss independence freedom fighter, uh, William Tell, who shot the famous apple off his son's head and fought for Swiss independence from the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Uh, but Rossini managed to fashion an almost six-hour opera out of uh, the story of William Tell's life. We don't hear the opera too often, mainly because it's six hours long, but we do hear the overture because it's been made so popular, so ubiquitous uh, through pop culture, not only through The Lone Ranger and, and other uh, TV shows like that, but also uh, Bugs Bunny makes liberal use of parts of this overture. So what's so wonderful in hearing the whole, I guess it's about 10 or 11 minute overture, is that Rossini was such a, a genius at distilling the essence of music. There is never an extraneous note in his music. It's so light and clean and brilliant. So this is essentially, it's, it's like a four movement pictorial symphony in about 10 or 11 minutes uh, in four very distinct parts. It begins with this beautiful, very unique for the time, cello quintet, basically a solo cello accompanied by four or other solo cellists, plus the basses of the orchestra, uh, the solo cello all by herself, in this case our principal cellist Susan Libby, begins low in the bottom of the register and climbs up in this sort of inspirational ascent, which is answered by the rest of the section and by uh, the basses. And there's this wonderful 
three or four minute long cello uh, group solo that's extremely uh, expressive and romantic and and understated, like a, a gorgeous song. And that's followed. It, it, it transitions immediately into what I would call the second movement, which is a, a depiction of a, a great Swiss storm that sort of blows in almost immediately. You'll hear the second violins and the violas buzzing. And it begins this fabulous, very strongly pictorial depiction of a, of a, of a, a very visceral kind of crazy storm trombones in the back and the bass drum uh, encouraged to hit as hard as possible so you get these fabulous sort of thunder claps uh, that leads after maybe two minutes or so to a, a beautiful ras de vanche a sort of um, a shepherd's call which is the part that's made most famous by Bugs Bunny and so on played by that very distinctive instrument that wasn't much used at the time the English horn a larger member of the of the oboe family and uh, that of course finally leads into this final march of the heroic uh, it's not certainly a march it's a march of the horses it's a a gallop that goes on this unbelievably famous uh, section. Uh, and really, when done right, it really does sound absolutely like horses. Uh, so uh, Rossini was just a, a magical uh, sort of magician at at uh, conjuring really clear pictures and sounds. It's a very sort of romantic idea. And of course, this piece sitting at 1829 at the cusp of the romantic period, just at the end of the classical period, is a, a very distinctive and unique kind of piece. So a very exciting way to begin our concert. Uh, here is Rossini's overture to his opera, William Tell, from 1829. The orchestra is the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion and WMHT.org. That was Gioacchino Rossini's Overture to William Tell, the opening work on our program, the Albany Symphony played, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. Next on the program, a very exciting premiere for all of us by Michael Torkey. It's a brand new work for piano and orchestra, really ostensibly a piano concerto, but with a kind of unique pictorial title, Three Manhattan Bridges. Now, uh, Michael and the orchestra and I go back quite a ways. The orchestra and Michael go back a ways, but Michael and I go back more than 30 years to the time when we were both very young people in our early mid-20s. In fact, I commissioned his second orchestra piece, a beautiful piece called Bright Blue Music uh, for my youth orchestra at the time. The orchestra I was conducting, the New York Youth Symphony, we gave the premiere of that work. And I'm so honored and proud of the fact that it really has kind of entered the repertoire and is played by orchestras all over the country and all over the world, certainly not just by youth orchestras. It was a, a very daunting and complicated piece, but a wonderful piece. And since that time, Michael and I have um, collaborated just a, a great number of times throughout our, our careers. And he's uh, one of my favorite composers and, and really one of my favorite people. So uh, we've been involved in a, a sort of commissioning and recording project with him the last couple of years. Last year, we kicked off a new CD, a new uh, recording that's due out, we hope, probably early fall next year of two concertos. So last year, we commissioned the first of those. It was a cello concerto called Winter's tale. And this work, Three Manhattan Bridges, is the completion of this uh, recording project. So the reason I was sort of pushing Michael to to write concerto works is that uh, even though he has a very large oeuvre, a very large body of work, most of his works or, or most of his well-known works are really just pure orchestra pieces. And he has a great number of chamber pieces and some piano solo pieces, etc. But he, he has very few uh, works for soloist and orchestra. And I just think his being such a significant composer, he, he should have those kinds of works. And and, and and solo players, virtuosi, very much would love to be able to play those pieces and, and take them around. So we started with cello because he and I both thought that would be a, a 
beautiful place to start. But Michael's own instrument is the piano. As a, as a young person, he was a very accomplished pianist. He even attended Tanglewood as a, I think, a 16 or 17-year-old as a pianist. You know, So as he was matriculating into his composing career, he was always playing piano. He's a formidable technician. I've actually uh, worked with him as a solo pianist, and he's, he's brilliant. He's a brilliant pianist. So I thought it would be really fun and exciting for him to write a piano concerto. So last year, I, I asked him if he would consider that, and he said yes if he could pick the soloist. And I said, by all means, we'd love to have a soloist that he likes to work with. And he said, Joyce Young. I saw a video in which uh, she appeared about the Van Cliburn competition a few years ago, and she was the silver medal winner in that competition, and they made a video about it, and she was much featured in the video. And Michael just fell in love with her playing and with her from seeing that uh, fabulous video. And so he said, even though I know she's not a new music pianist and doesn't do this kind of thing, can you approach her and see if she'd be willing to consider this? And interestingly, we had just uh, had her as a guest playing Rachmaninoff the, the week before. So I emailed her and I sent her some of his music, which she didn't really know. And uh, she listened to it and got very excited. And so Michael wrote this piece for Joyce. And what's so singular is that Joyce, although she plays all over the world with all the greatest orchestras and plays the entire standard repertoire, has never before played a brand new piece and never been involved in the commissioning of a new work. Uh, And so Michael, being a great pianist, wrote an incredibly challenging and virtuosic and really unbelievably thrilling piano part as only a real pianist could. And so it really gave her a huge amount to do, but she approached it with such grace and excitement and really mastered it in the same way she masters works by Rachmaninoff and Tchaikovsky, etc. And so we uh, we just had a great week doing it. Uh, Michael described uh, the inspiration for the piece as uh, the fact that he had for many, many years has lived in New York down in in the village or almost in Soho on, on Houston Street. And he gave up his apartment, uh, sold his apartment a few years ago, uh, a couple of years ago, and moved full-time to Las Vegas where he's had a house and decided he would live there. And then after about three months, decided that he had been completely crazy and that he absolutely had to be able to spend time in New York. So he came back to the city and he bought a new uh, apartment on the far, far east side overlooking the 59th Street Bridge. And so as he was working on this piece, he was talking about how it, it really was a love letter to the city of New York. And I think uh, when you hear it, you'll you'll recognize that because it has a lot of sort of jazz elements. It's It's got a lot of a sort of uh, almost like a Gershwin feel to it. It doesn't sound like Gershwin. It sounds every bit like Torquay, but it's not, it's got very virtuosic gestures a la Rachmaninoff and Ravel, but it's also got this wonderful sort of a nostalgic New York Gershwin-like sensibility to it. And uh, so that's when Michael decided to name it Three Manhattan Bridges instead of just Piano Concerto Number Whatever. And each movement is essentially a depiction of, of one of the great bridges of Manhattan. The first movement, George Washington Bridge, is a big traditional kind of architectural shape of typical uh, concertos, very broad chords at the beginning that, that Joyce pounds out and lots of broad development. It's, it's, it unfolds over a pretty large time span, and there's a fantastic like three or four-minute, incredibly virtuosic cadenza for solo piano, where she just plays by herself, right at the kind of, a little bit past the midpoint, just before the recapitulation, before all the opening material returns. So that's uh, the first very muscular George Washington Bridge movement. Uh, the second movement, not surprisingly, is a very introspective kind of night music movement. It's called Queensboro Bridge, and Michael's image was that scene from the movie, the Woody Allen movie, Manhattan 
Manhattan where they're sitting on a park bench at, at dusk or at, at night and you can see the bridge illuminated with these lights uh, over the bridge. And it, it's again a very uh, evocative and, and delicate little movement. Not to tell you too much about the structure, but it is kind of set up in a fascinating way in that the orchestra plays a very brief three little woodwind solos that occupy maybe 30 seconds at the beginning that almost seem like the sweep of of the architecture of a bridge. And then the solo piano comes in and plays for about two minutes by herself and lays out all the themes of the movement in that two-minute span. And then the remainder of the movement, which is very extensive and very expressive, is a fascinating sort of thing. Little episodes for the woodwinds, but bigger episodes in which Michael takes that same opening material that the pianist just played, and the pianist plays improvisations on it, essentially, at the same speed, with the orchestra playing the same material kind of at half speed. So you have these two kind of parallel musics going on, and it's a very interesting kind of, almost like a little puzzle. It doesn't sound like a puzzle. It's Sounds just like beautiful, expressive music, and, and that's I think the great tribute to Michael that it doesn't. We don't. We aren't particularly aware of this learned process he's using, and yet it really works to to bind the music together and to to make a very successful architectural, structural kind of a movement. So that's Queensboro Bridge, and finally the third movement, a very jazzy kind of almost studio hip uh, movement, is called Brooklyn Bridge, uh, and it does have a very different kind of sound world from the two movements. So here now uh, the world premiere of a new work commissioned from Michael Torkey by the Albany Symphony. The commission was made possible by our good friend Paul Underwood, and the recording that we made the following morning was made possible by our great friend Marcia Nickerson. So this is Three Manhattan Bridges, Movement 1, George Washington Bridge, Movement 2, Queensboro Bridge, Movement 3, Brooklyn Bridge, performed by Joyce Young and the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion and WMHT.org. The Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony Concert Broadcast is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. The final work on our program was one of the monumental works of the entire repertoire and uh, really a, a very important work in sort of the evolution of concert music, of orchestral music. It's Franz Schubert's Symphony No. 9 in C major, so-called The Great Symphony. The numbering of the Schubert symphonies is always a bit of a puzzlement for all of us uh, because Schubert, as far as we can tell, wrote six pretty straight-up symphonies as a very young man, almost in his teens and into his early 20s. And then he had a lot of starts and stops. He wrote a great number of fragments of symphonies and and little bits of of symphonies, but didn't actually complete one for quite a while. Uh, The most famous of these fragments is one of which he completed two movements, the so-called Unfinished Symphony, which he wrote in 1822. But between the Sixth Symphony, which I think was completed back in 1818, and 1825, he really didn't manage to complete uh, a single symphony. And my contention is that that's because he was, like Brahms later, he was so, dare I say, intimidated by or so in awe of his great hero Beethoven and his symphonic utterances that he wanted to be sure to write something that was worthy of of Beethoven's legacy and I think felt very much cowed by that. So it was only in 1825 that Schubert finally completed a big symphony uh, he felt sort of inspired by Beethoven and yet at the same time, in my estimation, a piece that really owes less to Beethoven than I think Schubert himself thought. Just to back up a bit, Schubert was born in uh, 1797, 
Beethoven back in 1770. So Beethoven was 26 and a half, 27 years older than Schubert. And Schubert, uh, of course, growing up and living and working in Vienna, lived kind of in the shadow of Beethoven and was very much, as I mentioned, in awe of Beethoven. Beethoven was his great hero and he followed Beethoven's every utterance uh, with great interest and uh, really tried to emulate uh, Beethoven musically whenever possible. One of the great tragedies of Schubert is that he only lived to be 31 years old. So he died essentially a, a year or so after Beethoven in, in 1828. And so all of this promise, he wasn't able to fully realize his promise because he died so young. And yet that in itself is remarkable that dying at the age of 31, he was able to create so much great music, so much great chamber music. He essentially was the inventor of the modern-day art song. Uh, he wrote hundreds and hundreds, 600 and some art songs, many of them before he was 25 years old, uh, and and most of them the, the greatest um, masterpieces in the entire oeuvre. And in addition, he obviously wrote operas and he wrote symphonies, but those he had a harder time getting noticed and, and getting produced, etc. Uh, so a number of his works were published in his life. You know, we think of him as this kind of forgotten composer who was only recognized after his life. And, and even though he only lived to 31, while in his 20s, a great number of his songs were published and a great number of his solo piano pieces were published, uh, very wonderful piano pieces. And he was really, you know, a young composer on the ascent, cut short by this early death. Beethoven, as far as we know, did know about him and, and knew that he was a, a remarkable young talent and commented on the quality of his work. He actually was one of the pallbearers at Beethoven funeral. But he always kind of was a much quieter, shyer, more uh, retiring kind of person. So um, we're pretty sure that in 1824, Schubert, being in Vienna, uh, went to uh, hear the premiere of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, and like everybody else at the time, was quite overwhelmed by the the majesty and the brilliance of it. And so uh, interestingly, it was a year after that that Schubert uh, completed uh, this major symphony of his, the symphony number nine. Now, while the symphony number nine is not a choral piece like Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, it does sort of stake out this giant scale uh, like Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. And so the piece lasts anywhere from about 48 minutes to about an hour and two minutes, 62 minutes. I've heard various versions, particularly of, of the older generation of German conductors who tend to take it very, very slowly. Because I believe that this is very much a piece that is an homage to Beethoven and even to earlier composers, Mozart and Haydn, who were great loves of, of Schubert in, in music, that uh, I tend to, to play it in a much more classical style and, frankly, at much faster tempos because I, I believe that's what Schubert indicates. He doesn't give us metronome marks, but he certainly gives us tempo indications. Starting with the very beginning of, of the symphony, a famous horn called bum, 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 which most conductors do rather slowly, thinking that it's in four, but actually the manuscript marks it in two, so it really becomes bum, 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 bum. And what's beautiful, if one takes it at a somewhat sprightly tempo like that, is that then you don't have to speed up to the fast part of the first movement. It just becomes kind of double time that. So I try to observe that metric relation, and I think it makes for a much more exciting and crystalline kind of piece. A second movement is one of the most beautiful of all slow movements in, in all of music, I think. It's just the most beautiful thing. Uh, it features a very prominent solo oboe uh, who plays throughout this very bum, ba-dum, ba-dum, ba-da-dum, bum. Bum, bum, bum. And there's this last little theme, uh, this kind of falling theme that starts with the second violins, just with a descending scale. 
which to me is one of the most beautiful things in all of music. Uh, Schubert had this way of taking very simple materials and spinning the most expressive, uh, romantic, beautiful ideas from them. Yet at the same time, even though he tr- was trying to be Beethovenian, to me his music is so different. He he can't really function the same way Beethoven does. And that Beethoven takes these very small m- motives, these little ur motives, ba 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 bum, ba 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 bum, or ba da 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 di da da dum, and can build a whole gigantic architectural structure out of them. Schubert really thinks so much more lyrically and melodically. So Schubert's melodies tend to be much longer, and so Schubert's structures tend to often become very long because he doesn't really chop them up quite the same way Beethoven does. And so his music, while owing a great deal to Beethoven, I think is singular and entirely a different aesthetic experience. The third movement is a great big scherzo a la Beethoven, and I think very much inspired by the the scherzo in Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. And what Schubert does, even though his music doesn't sound like that, is um, he builds a very large scherzo movement, larger than any other scherzo before, except for that Ninth Symphony scherzo. So obviously he was very much inspired by that. And the last movement is just one of the most technically daunting pieces in all of the repertoire, because you'll hear the speed of it. And uh, I don't think I go at a reckless speed. I just go at, you know, on the front end of what's pretty much the standard speed. And yet the violin parts and, and all the string parts, and frankly, all the parts are unbelievably virtuosic, to the point where when Mendelssohn first programmed this piece, he, he was conducting it in London. When the London orchestra saw how many repeats of they had to do, they actually broke out laughing, laughing and refused to perform the piece. And Mendelssohn packed up and went home and didn't, didn't ever perform it at that time. It was only performed much later. So the piece had a long time, a, a lot of challenge becoming established in the repertoire. This was partly because it was never performed during uh, Schubert's life. It may have been read once, but then they put it back in the box and never looked at it again. And it was only after Schubert's death, many years after Schubert's death, that Robert Schumann came to visit Schubert's brother, Ferdinand, who had a great number of of scores that had never been sold or given away. And Schumann went through these scores and discovered this 150-some page manuscript of this monumental symphony, sent it to his good friend Mendelssohn. And in 1839, Mendelssohn premiered the piece with a great number of cuts of taking material out, uh, which is still commented on by all the scholars and critics who write about it. Uh, So even Mendelssohn, the great Mendelssohn, thought it was a little on the long side. Uh, These days, we don't cut it at all. But for example, I didn't take all the standard uh, repeats, but I played every single note of the piece, uh, just in that even without the repeats, it's still about a 48-minute long symphony, which is quite monumental. But so the piece, uh, the last movement, in addition to being unbelievably daunting, is to the listener incredibly beautiful and and exciting and, frankly, Mendelssohnian. I think Mendelssohn probably loved it because a lot of Mendelssohn's music comes out sounding as bright and lithe as this movement. There's an incredible second theme that, again, just starts with this kind of basically not very clever idea. Bum, 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 ba-da-dum, da-da-da-da-da, bum, bum. Just a repeat of a note four times and a little a little melodic thing following it. And this builds to the most extraordinary climax and becomes really important in the development of the material. So an incredible symphony, one year after Beethoven's Ninth Symphony uh, from 1825 by Franz Schubert, and really the last 
last great classical symphony before we head into the Romantic period of Schumann and Mendelssohn and Wagner and Liszt and Berlioz and Chopin. Uh, so a, a, a great, great uh, final work that looks, I think, very much back to Mozart, Haydn, and Beethoven, even as it does sort of direct us toward this monumental romantic future that it's on the cusp of. It's Franz Schubert's Symphony Number no. 9 in C major, the Great Symphony. It is played by the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. Thanks for listening to the Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller of the Albany Symphony Orchestra from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org.